This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. I thought this was going to be a great expositional series for us to begin January in. But what I didn't do is like map out all the weeks, and I didn't know what was coming in the world. So this week, this message is entitled, Submit Yourself, and I probably could have called it, Commit Yourself. That would be to me, because we're going we're gonna to go there. Um, truthfully, if I had known that the world would be as it is, this probably wouldn't have been the passage I was preaching from this week. I probably would have picked a nicer one from Psalms, like perhaps Psalm 23, laying down beside still waters. Um, but, but as it turns out, this is the week that we're teaching on this. And, and truthfully, this is why we teach expositionally. Um, because it's easy otherwise <laughs> to pick all the nice, soft verses and not grapple with the difficult ones. And as a church and as a community of believers, we want to be committed uh, to dealing with even the difficult passages. Okay, so are you ready to go there today? I've, I've gotten you ready for this. I didn't tell you the verses we're talking about yet. It starts off nice, by the way. It ends nice, too. There's just some difficult uh, verses in it. What I want us to remember, though, is that if you haven't been with us in this series, 1 Peter is a book where Peter was writing to a church in exile. Uh, they were, um, all the church had been scattered because they'd been persecuted, and they were, he was writing to a church that was actually all over the world. And uh, he starts this morning... Uh, in verse 11 is where we're going to start. It says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Okay, so Peter starts off this section of scripture reminding us, like this is sort of, Peter's like a bit like a broken record. He's like your mom when you were 13. Clean your room, clean your room, clean your room. Have a shower, have a shower, have a shower. I will be perpetually in that phase because I have four children and clean your room, clean your room, clean your Peter keeps reminding them, you're exiles, you're exiles, you're exiles, you're in this world, you're not of it, you're in this world, you're not of it. And he reminds them that um, we're going to have to make some decisions. You're an exile and God has saved you by grace, but that does not mean that we just get in the lazy river and like lay down. No, he says you got to make some decisions because there is a war going on for your soul. Um, spiritual warfare is a very real thing, the book of 1 Peter reminds us. I mean, most of my life, I'd like to wish that it was not a thing, right? Because who really wants to be like, oh, sign me up, I'm so happy I'm in a war. Like, only people who have never been in war watch war movies, right? Because war is awful. It's hard and difficult. But Peter reminds us, like it's nice, it would be nice to say we're not in spiritual warfare, but, but we are. There's a war for your soul. Some of you are acutely aware of that. Some of you know that in a very real, real way. You've recognized that over the last two years you've been in a war. And the enemy will use anything he can. So how do we counteract uh, this, the, how do we counteract the enemy's uh, attacks against us? And Peter uses uh, the word abstain here. And it's interesting because if you were with us in the first passage, in the first couple of weeks of this message, you remember that Peter said crave healthy things. Remember crave spiritual things? And we talked about how we can crave healthy things. And 
Well, in this case, Peter says, abstain from the things that cause you to sin. Now, if you are an all-in kind of a person, you will understand this scripture quite well. I am that kind of person. I actually, there are things in my life that I absolutely, I cannot have moderation in. And you're going to laugh, but one thing that I was um, banned from when Dave and I first got married was novels. Um, and this is because when Jessica reads a novel, Jessica leaves the planet. I don't attend to things. I do not brush my hair. I mean, I have to tell myself to shower, and while I'm showering, I'm thinking, if only I could make a waterproof book up. It's awful, okay? So now I'm not, I know some of you will want to come and have a psychological, you are psychologically assessing me right now, saying, I don't think our pastor's very healthy. But I recognize that when we had children, and, and a lot of you, I know a lot of you say, well, what about on vacation? Can't you read? I have children. They were near drowning when I would leave them to have a book. The problem is I get sucked in. Anybody else? Okay, maybe not with books, but do you understand this with some, do, do any of you understand this? Like you just have to say, no, I cannot do that. I'll tell you what's happened to me recently. How many of you have got sucked into that game Wordle? <laughs> oh, I see the honest people amongst us. I could tell you the word. Do you know the word today? Okay, shh. We're all, we're all just being good humans here. Okay, but I, I, don't go, I don't have games on my phone, not because I'm, well, I do actually, but I don't play them because even last week I said, I'll just play for a minute. There's this silly little game with a beaker and then Wordle, and then do you know what happens? Time goes by fast. You get in a time warp speed, and all of a sudden you realize it's midnight. Okay, so as humans, most of us are, are like this in, in different areas. Um, and, but particularly when it comes to sin, now your sin of choice may not be the same as mine. By the way, I'm not saying Wordle is a sin. Go home and play it this afternoon, it's fine. Uh, but, but your sin of choice sucks you in. This is the way of sin. And, and Peter reminds us, that we have to abstain. Now, to abstain, nobody is going to force you to abstain. You must abstain yourself. That is a decision that you make. And Peter reminds us that we have to abstain. And then he gives us, Peter gives us the reason for this. Now, I, I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, listen, abstain so then you'll be really holy and everyone will think you're spiritual and God will love you more. He doesn't even say, like, like you should not do those sins because it's wrecking your soul. He doesn't even say that. He says, the reason we abstain from sin is so that people will see our lives and say, I want that, that Jesus inside of you. I, I, I want some of that. You see, our witness is the point of our discipleship. Our witness is the point of our discipleship. It is not, our, our, our discipleship we don't, we don't become holier and holier and, and follow the rules more cl clearly so that God will love us more. That is not the message of the New Testament. The message of the New Testament is that we're saved by grace, we live by grace. But we get discipled and we become sanctified, we become more and more like Jesus so that our witness is something that people want. And this is important when we talk about the next little bit, when we talk about submission. When we get up and we ask God to take control of how we live, we are partnering with God. Theologians um, say that it's the missio day of God. God's number one 
uh, issue in the world, or his number one mission in the world, is to see that people come into relationship with him. And so our sanctification is this, this opportunity for us to become more like him. And then Peter launches into this whole section about how we're to go out living out our discipleship. So how we're actually to go about abstaining from sin. And um, what he's driving at in these verses, and we'll read them in a second, is that one of the most effective ways that we can display our transformed lives is understanding what it means to submit. Now, um, as soon as I say the word submit, I know that a lot of you have had like a visceral reaction, like I can't believe she's actually going to... Because the word submit or submission has a lot of baggage in our culture, doesn't it? Um, and, and sometimes you can even feel uncomfortable reading these passages in First Peter. There have been seasons in my life where this is where I'd come to in my Bible reading, and I would sort of read it like a speed reader. Like, oh, oh, wonderful, we're going to submit to the government. And, the end. Whoo, that one's done for the day. But submission, here's what submission means. And we're going to, I want us to have a real discussion about it because I don't think it does us any good to just say, oh, like those verses are kind of like, we, we actually have to look at them and figure out what they mean. Okay, so the word submission means it's the action or fact of accepting or yielding to the will or authority of another person. This is what it means to submit. And submission is hard in our culture for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first reason submission is hard, particularly in North America, is that our culture is obsessed with individual rights and freedoms. So I don't want to yield to somebody else, because that would mean that it would be problematic for me. Um, and at some level, even the word yield doesn't, like, if you're going to yield to someone, it, it gives you the idea that you're giving up. You know, this idea like, oh, if I've got to yield to you, that means that I'm saying you won and I lost. And, and the idea of yielding in our culture gives us this idea that uh, we were not strong enough or we were not the alpha male or female or whatever you think of. Um, I, I think also we're, we're quite a bit worried about our own self-actualization. So for most of our lives, all of us have been given the idea that, that the highest good that can come to you is you can become all that God or your mom wants you to be. Like... Like, that's the highest goal. And so if I submit to somebody else, if I yield to somebody else, well, then I can't actually self-actualize. I'm just actually having you and your mom be happy. Right? And, and um, this, is, this is where we have a bit of trouble. I think here is another issue. And I want to talk about this particular one. We sometimes can't tell the difference between submission and abuse. And this becomes problematic for us and has become, prob and has become problematic for the church because there have been places and times where the church has preached that abuse and submission are the same thing. It's like a pin dropping in here today. Th this is a difficult thing, though. Um, it, there is a difference, though, between submission and abuse, and we must untangle these if we're going to actually understand what the Word of God is telling us. The, the first difference is that submission requires personal agency. And we're going to see this in First Peter. All the time, when, when Peter is uh, calling the church to be submissive, it requires personal agency, you making the decision to yield your will to another person's. Abuse never does. So the question you can ask yourself 
in, in your own circumstances that you find yourself in is if you're being abused, you don't have any choice in the matter. There's no personal agency. And what we also have to recognize here is that submission is not the highest good in Scripture. It is not as though Peter says, now this is the only thing I want you to think about. It is a thing, but it is not the highest good in Scripture. Following God is the highest uh, good. Therefore, submission will always fall in line with other biblical mandates. It does not supersede them. This is why, I mean, I have a lot of people say to me, well, like, theology is like super boring, and it's like very, uh, but, but your theology, actually how you think about theological concepts matters to how you walk out your life. And it's important for us to understand that submission, um, while a biblical concept, must come in line with other biblical concepts. Um, and, and, okay, and then finally, the act of submitting requires that sometimes we wrestle out the greater good. And here is the rub for us relationally. Because the act of submitting sometimes requires that we wrestle out the greater good. And what you think is the greater good and what I think is the greater good can be two different things, yes? We know this because Christians are fighting on Twitter like they have nothing to do, like we're all unemployed. And listen, if we don't talk about these things, we run the risk of being like that sheep. You know, you know that meme, I should have had a little picture of it, where the sheep runs in the ditch and then someone helps it out and then it gets up and runs into the ditch again? We actually have to be able to talk about these things. Okay, suffice to say, let me just, uh, I mean, this is a conversation that could continue going on. Some of you in your small groups will talk about this this week. Uh, but suffice to say, the Bible that it is not a book that calls its followers to be abused. But this does not mean that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. We cannot say, okay, the Bible doesn't call us to be abused, so forget submission altogether. No, that, that creates its own set of problems. Okay, so now let's read these next scriptures. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. I remember again that our discipleship, the point of our discipleship is our witness. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God and honor the emperor. Okay, this is not the only place in scripture where this idea of submitting to authorities is laid out. Romans 13, 1 through 5, you can see it on the screen. Um, and you can study these in your own time. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. It's a fairly strong, it's a fairly strong scripture. It's pretty hard to make. Okay, and then Titus 3, 1 to 3, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready, to do whatever is good. And then in Matthew chapter 17, we see that Jesus lived this out before the uh, epistles were even written. Uh, he, he paid his taxes and told his disciples, you render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, so he, here's where we have to do some historical work. Uh, it's important for us to understand the context that First Peter is written in. Where, what, what was the history that... Peter was living in at the time. So the letter was written around 60 AD. This section where Peter's telling everybody to be submit is written during 60 AD, which means that the emperor whom Peter is talking about is probably Nero. So Nero was the third emperor in a trio of truly terrible Caesars. 
Um, and it was basically like a caesarial cuckoo train. Like th these people were, I mean, all of our politicians are looking amazing. Let me just give you an example. Uh, it started off with Caligula, and Cal Caligula was probably unfit to have a goldfish, let alone rule uh, an empire. Shortly after he became Caesar, he, he had his mom and brother killed to make sure that they didn't ever challenge the throne. What a lovely young man. He openly committed incest with three of his sisters. He frequently went out in public dressed in ridiculous outfits. He installed his horse. This is a really weird thing I found out this week. He installed his horse in Cydatus as a senator. And then he promoted him later to colonel. Caligula, he once got mad at the weather, and he declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea. He ordered his soldiers to take whips into the water and beat the waves for punishment and bring home seashells to symbolize taking plunder from his domain. Okay, so then after Caligula was Claudius, and Claudius was like not quite <laughs> as wild, but really kind of horrible. He was mean and he uh, really persecuted Christians um, and then he handed the throne over to Nero now um, by the way by when we say handed over um, the throne Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could you can, can you see that this is like tumultuous politicalness like I mean oh. so Nero turned out to be the worst of all three now I don't even know how you can say worse like when you're, when you're killing people, and I don't know, it's just like shades of bad. Um, Nero, Nero was a, the worst Christian hater of all time. He intentionally set fire to Rome, and then he stood on his balcony watching it, playing his harp like he was some kind of tragic poet. And then he blamed the whole thing on Christians and used it, used it as a pretext to have them rounded up and thrown to the lions. And it is in this context that Peter writes what we just heard. What? Doesn't this seem crazy to you? Like, hello, what, what, what is going on here? Okay, so the question becomes, what does this mean for us today? Peter writes this, what, what does this mean for us today? It means that we must come under the government's authority even when we don't agree with everything they do. And this is why, I mean, you're all wearing masks today. This is part of the reason, because our job is to come under government's authority, whether we like it or not. Um, and Christians, the second thing that we learn is that Christians must behave as good citizens because our witness depends on it. And this is the point of our discipleship. Okay, so now the third thing, and this is the tricky part. So I'm not, I'm not insinuating this morning, some of you might be getting, this is not a political message. I'm not insinuating that this is easy. Uh, number three is that because we're submitting as to the Lord, we must resist only when the authority is in direct violation of God's authority. Now, I want you to think back historically to what we know about Caligula, Caligula Claudius, and Nero. I mean, you could have said that their very existence was in direct violation of God. And yet Peter wrote, be subject to every governing authority. So what does that mean? Now, this is difficult for us. It's difficult on two fronts, number three. It's difficult because we have to know, we have to have wisdom to understand when to uh, say something and when not to. I mean, you think back to Germany in World War II and think, what, what, what was going on with the church? What, were they sleeping? Were they, 
So it's a general rule. I think what we have to say, it's a general rule that we submit. Most governments are trying, although imperfectly, to do the right thing. And this is what first, and you can study that this week. He, Peter implies this in his writing. And then we remember that we are exiles. Um, this is not our home. Well, we live here, we pray for the peace of our, the place we live, but this is not our home. And, and I think we also have to remember that our freedom in Christ can never be conflated with political freedom. It just can't. I'm concerned. And I, I will say this. I am concerned uh, by some of my colleagues who are saying or are conflating political freedom with spiritual freedom. Do you know when Paul wrote, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Do you know what he was doing? He was handcuffed and on his way to Rome to be killed. That'll change the way you look at that verse, won't it? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. When Christ set us free, he set us free from the internal bondage that the enemy put on our soul. We are free no matter what the circumstances. That's why we can say it doesn't matter if we're in a catacomb or if we're in prison. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. That's, that's why your circumstances don't matter. It doesn't matter. But it also tells us that this is difficult relationally. I read in the, in the news this week that people, uh, more than any other time during this last two years, people have left friendships, churches have had troubles, and, and we have to admit that this has been difficult because some of us read what's happening in the news differently than others of us. Um, okay, so here's what we can learn from this. We can have different opinions and still love each other. Yes? We, we can have a different interpretation of a scripture and not lose the plot on each other. We can say, we, we don't have to heresy hunt. We don't have to say the re you think of that scripture as different than me and I think this is the time to rise up. You're the worst. I'm ah. If you get that voice it's weird anyways. Don't have that voice. And and here's the other thing I want to call us to as a community. We can challenge one another without getting into name calling and heresy hunting. We can have discussions with each other and I mean, I have all kinds of friends who totally disagree with some of the things I, and some of them have been so gracious. Like we've had these ongoing talks where, and it's, it's good for us to do that. I, I'm not advocating that just, oh, keep your thoughts to yourself and never talk to anybody about your opinion. That's silly too. We must learn to discuss with one another civilly. Our witness depends on it. Our witness depends on it. And finally, um, we can disagree and still pursue Jesus together. We're not looking to create a community of monochromatic people who all believe the same thing and live it out the same way. It's okay if we disagree on things. I mean, we agree that there are, there are foundational things we agree on. But if you have a different opinion than me or the person sitting next to you, praise God. It's ironing, iron sharpening iron. You're never going to get sharp if you don't have anybody that disagrees with you. By the way, it's not submission until you disagree. You can't submit to the government until you disagree with them. That's not submission. That's like going along with you win. That's called you win. Okay, the bottom line is this. I felt the Lord say this to me so clear this week. Like I have had it like a gong going through my head. We are not to overinflate things that were never meant to be primary issues. And the Lord just spoke this very clearly to me. Let me speak it to your spirit today. Overinflated tires pop and render the car undrivable. Overinflated tires. Some of you have got a tire that you're just pumping. You're just pumping it and it's ready to pop. And it's going to render your Christian witness undrivable. 
don't overinflate things that were never meant to be primary issues. None of what we're dealing right now has to do with Jesus and his sacrifice for us. None of what we're dealing with right now has to do with the fact that Jesus is coming back for a church that is without spot or wrinkle. Okay, now we've gone from that, now we're going into the fire even more. Okay, we're going to read, continue reading. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if somebody bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, if I was worried about stepping in it, talking about the government, this next passage just adds a whole other layer to our discussion, doesn't it? I do want to make some historical comments about this passage, uh, particularly as we come into Black History Month, where we celebrate all the ways that black people have overcome oppression and terrible atrocities that were done to them, sometimes in the name of Jesus. Um, and before we study this passage, we must acknowledge that this passage particularly was often used to denigrate um, slaves. They would bring in pastors. This is a historical truth. They would bring in preachers and pastors, and they would preach this passage as a way to keep slaves slaves. Horrible, horrible, not, not godly, and, and it is an example of why we need to study the scripture together. It's why we can't just cherry pick verses and pick the ones that are easy. We got to deal with ones that are hard because we got to deal with our history. If we do not deal with our history, we will never heal the wounds of the past. So, oftentimes, um, because of the misuse, churches will shy away from passages like this and pretend that they don't exist. And while this keeps them away from controversy, it doesn't do anything to repair the hermeneutical and social, sociological damage that has been done. Okay, so today we're going to look at this passage head on. Uh, I want to tell you from the outset, the Bible was never pro-slavery. We see that right from the Torah, that, that God forbade slavery. In both the Old and New Testaments, the word used to denote slaves did not carry the same connotations that we associate with slavery today. Um, this, the stealing and selling of humans, uh, such has been common throughout human history, uh, particularly a hundred, couple hundred years ago, and and right now, by the way, it's a capital offense according to the Old Testament law. And the return of fugitive slaves to their masters was also illegal. It was illegal to hunt um, slaves that walked away. In almost every instance, the kind of slavery governed by the Old Testament law was debt slavery, where an individual who was in labor um, would offer labor in exchange for an outstanding debt that they couldn't pay. It was never racially based. Um, and the laws that govern such transactions are given to protect such rights. So if you read Genesis, I mean, maybe some of you made the idea that you're going to read the Bible in a year, and you're probably in about Deuteronomy right now, and you're thinking, I don't think I can make it. Um, the, the important thing about those laws when you read them is to remember that often those laws were meant to protect marginalized people. That's why they're long, and that's why they're detailed. And early Christians had to work out their treatment of one another under Roman law, um, and most Christians, by the way, the early Christians were poor, and they lacked power to bring political change. And God is a God, we see this from Genesis to Revelation, who is always bringing us to redemption. We, we call this the redemptive hermeneutic, that God, so when it comes to issues like 
women's issues, um, slave issues. God is redeeming uh, his words. So he deals with us where we are. Aren't you glad that he doesn't say, hey, hey, you, you've been a Christian for three minutes. I'd like you to get every single thing out of your life right now, right in this spot. I mean, all of us would be crushed by that. So God is a God who doesn't crush us. He, he continues to reveal his truth to us. And we see this in the New Testament, that when you come to the uh, book of Philemon, Paul is advocate, advocating for Onesimus, who was a slave, to be set free. Okay, so given all of that, um, know this, that the Christian community, the first century Christian community was a countercultural movement in which social distinctions were all but erased. This is why the message went ballistic, because, because what happened was slaves and frees, free people, Greek people, Jewish people, Roman people, all came under one roof. And this is what made people stand up and say, I want that. Again, coming back to Peter's idea that our witness, that our sanctification is for the purpose of our witness. So what can we learn about how we live out our Christianity based on this text? So if it's not saying, if it's not a way to like keep people under our thumb, what is it? It's that we must live in a godly manner even when things are not going our way. Suffering is not a sign that God is abandoning us, but rather it is a sign that he is forming us. You might be here and maybe facing tremendous suffering right now. God has not abandoned you. Rather, he is forming you into his likeness. Jesus is with you. And this is what, what Peter is saying to the church here. And finally, how we proceed through valleys is as important as how and when we triumph. All of us are going to be in a valley at some point in time. <laughs> I really wish we could be the kind of church that said, if you come here, you will never face a valley. Sign up now. I'd be signing up for that church, except for that it wouldn't be true. We all face valleys. We're all going to be treated unjustly at some point. Have you ever had the feeling of like, when someone says something about you that's categorically untrue? What does it make you feel like? I know for me, I get this tightening in my chest. And I, and I want to be like, I did not say that, or I did not do that, and how could you think that? And this is exactly what Peter is speaking to in this. Like, what good is your Christianity if you're like a super good employee when your boss loves you and everyone is great? Like, that tells nothing about the power of Jesus in you. That just says you're regular. But we actually are supernaturally infused when things are difficult and we say, Jesus, I'm, still, I'm, I'm, I'm here to glorify you. So at the end of this passage, um, Peter brings it all back to Jesus. This whole idea of submitting, by the way, next week, it just, it just so happens that next week it's, it's Valentine's Day weekend. If you celebrate the Hallmark holiday of Valentine's Day. Um, and we're going to talk about submission in marriage we're going to get into a really tricky passage in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I would just yeah, encourage you to come. Um, this is, I, I told you at the beginning of this series that Peter really, like, pushes us where we are. He doesn't let us have a spirituality that's, like, bifurcated, like, here's our spiritual life, and here's our real life. by saying this to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example you should follow in his steps remember I said you can't submit a 
until you disagree. Peter says this is the example of Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter ends this passage reminding us that in the end, everything is about Jesus. We yield our will to others, to government, to our bosses, to in order to emulate Jesus. That's the point. And Jesus himself demonstrated submission both to authorities and ultimately to his Father so that we could be rescued from our brokenness. Every single time we submit, every single time we are emulating the way of Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you've never really made a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you've come to church, but you've never made a decision that, Jesus, I'm going to submit to you. I'm going to surrender to you. Really, the thing that makes Jesus most trustworthy here, this is what's so amazing about the Bible. Peter doesn't get on here and say, like, here are all the 55 things you have to do. And by the way, Jesus did none of them. No, 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 no. He reminds us in this passage, the reason that makes this makes Jesus trustworthy is because he himself submitted. He himself laid down his will, his life. He is the definition. Jesus is the definition of integrity. And Jesus showed us the ultimate display of submission. When he laid down his life so that we could have, when he submitted his life so that we could have life in him. And the benefits of submission, listen, in Jesus, don't just begin when we die. Okay, so like I think sometimes we preach like salvation is a one-way ticket to heaven. And like, well, that is true. It's not the whole story. It's not the whole good news story. Because like then it's kind of awful, right? Like the only good news I have to tell you is that when you die, you won't go to hell. That, that seems weird. Uh, the good news of Jesus is that when we submit to him now, now, I came to give you life and life more abundantly now. And this is why First Peter says, and by his wounds, you have been healed. When we submit to Jesus, we actually are submitting to his healing in our lives, his healing in our bodies, his healing in our minds, his healing in our relationships. This is the way of Jesus. Submission always bears fruit. Always bears fruit. So all across this place today, I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're here today and you need to make a decision to say, yeah, Jesus, I, I'm going to, maybe I have like called you Savior, but I've never submitted to you, like never actually laid down my will, never yielded my will to you. Today, I, I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for all of us. You know, we do this as a, as a, for some of you who've never done this as a first time act, but it's a daily act saying, Jesus, I'm submitting to you again. I'm yielding myself to you. Can we just can we just pray, God? I just pray that you would give us courage now um, to submit ourselves to you. May we remember, God, that as we submit to others around us, that we are emulating you. And God, I pray that in our submission there would be great fruit from it. I pray that healing would come in this house, supernatural signs and wonders would happen because we have ultimately submitted to you in all things. In the mighty and powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church.